Attention listeners, do you ever find yourself struggling to decide what to watch on a Saturday night when you're in the mood for horror? Or perhaps you're trying to round out your own horror film education. In either case, I'm sure you'll be able to make some great discoveries in my 10x10 horror watch list, featuring a breakdown of the 10 favorite horror movies from 10 renowned horror directors. We did a deep dive of the favorite horror movies from directors including Guillermo del Toro, Ari Aster, Jordan Peele, Quentin Tarantino, James Gunn, Rob Zombie, Martin Scorsese, and many, many more. Here you'll find a collection of each director's favorite horror movies, along with quotes about what they appreciated about the films, all in an easy-to-reference PDF that you can download absolutely free. Featuring a mix of well-worn classics and deep cuts, hopefully you'll discover some overlooked gems and look at old classics through new lenses. Download the 10x10 Horror Watch List for free by visiting nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. That's nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. Welcome back to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Beetlejuice will forever hold a very special place in my heart. Every Saturday morning, Beetlejuice was my go-to cartoon, and my VHS of the movie practically melted from being watched so much. I had the action figures, the soundtrack, and the Halloween costume as a child and as an adult. It wasn't only my quintessential gateway horror movie, but it also shaped a lifelong, unapologetic appreciation for all things weird and macabre. The movie had a lightning-in-a-bottle combination of a devilishly rebellious spirit and a singularity of vision that introduced the world to the wonders of Tim Burton. It was, and forever will be, an iconic and magical movie and a very important part of me. The movie is just as sacred to countless others for all of the same reasons, which is likely why the Beetlejuice sequels and remakes have remained in production hell for decades. How can you possibly reimagine a classic that means so much to so many people? The answer? Turn it into a musical. Despite being a little apprehensive at first, what struck me within the first 10 minutes of Beetlejuice the Musical was that it was developed with a tremendous amount of love and respect for the original movie. The show encompasses all of the many facets of what made the movie so great, while expanding on the story in very inventive ways. It even had several nods to the cartoon, which just made me happy. This is a killer show, and if you can, I urge you to go see it if you're in the New York area. The costumes, the music, the humor, and the insanely elaborate Burton-esque sets and visuals are an overwhelming and blissful experience for fans of the original. Plus, the anarchistic spirit of lewdness and rudeness from the movie is retained in full force. The show will be on tour beginning in December, so if you can't make it to New York, check and see if it's coming your way at BeetlejuiceBroadway.com slash tour. The show is ignited by the performance of Alex Brightman as Beetlejuice. Alex is an actor, singer, and two-time Tony Award-nominated actor. He was nominated for his roles on Broadway as Dewey Finn in the musical adaptation of School of Rock and as Beetlejuice in Beetlejuice the Musical. 
After shuddering due to COVID, Beetlejuice is back on Broadway. I got to sit down with Alex to catch up on what the experience was like, as well as how he created his take on the iconic and beloved character of Beetlejuice. Please enjoy this conversation with Alex Brightman. Alex Brightman, good to see you, sir. How's it going? It's a pleasure to see you, too. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. Doing really good. First of all, congratulations on week one. Beetlejuice the Musical is back on Broadway, finally. Um, I saw it twice during its original run and was heartbroken when it went off Broadway, but I am just elated that it's back. It's some of the most fun that I've had in Broadway, on Broadway, and I've had plenty of fun on Broadway, but there was something very special about this show. So congratulations, first and foremost. And by the way, you were heartbroken. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I can't imagine Um, what you were feeling. (laughs) No, I mean, we, we felt it all together. Trust me. Um, but it is nice. And we haven't even it hasn't even been week one yet. It's like, you know, it's like it's sort of like we've done two performances uh, last week. And now I think we've done three this week. So we haven't even done a full eight shows yet. So it's like Whoa. still so fresh and so new. And it's so much fun. And I'm also two years older and feeling that completely. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, once you pass like 34 every every year, you kind of feel, yeah, I'm with you there. Oh, my God. Yeah, not fun. But, uh, well, cool. So, I mean, for those who don't know, how what ended up happening? How did the show kind of go away and then spectacularly come back? Was it COVID-related? It was all COVID-related. That's so, what I thought. So, yeah, so our show, you know, wasn't slated to close our show was on sort of this really actually this sort of meteoric thing was happening with the show it started out really slow um when we first opened to i mean truly to a point where we kind of weren't sure we were going to run and then tiktok kind of saved our show to be quite honest um which was something at the time i didn't really know about i didn't it sounded to me like i was too old to even try to dabble into another app. And I was like, I don't know what this is, but people really took to our show on there um, because it really does speak to creative outcasts and creative misfits. And um, I'm certainly one of those. I think every actor can sort of find a way to resonate with the sort of misfit thing. Yeah. Um, and they, that we found our audience there and the word of mouth there spread like crazy. And after about, two months our show you couldn't get a ticket to our show so it became this really great thing and then covid happened and all of broadway shut down so we were part of all of broadway and so we uh very sadly didn't get to say a real goodbye to the show and we didn't think that it was going to come back there was no plan for that Mm -hmm. so this beetlejuice coming back was just as much of a surprise for the audiences than it was for us i mean we I, in my in my real heart of hearts, I was like, that's it. You know, that I figured that might have been it. So for it to come back is not only a huge testament to, uh, you know, the show, but a humongous testament to the fans that have kept it heated yeah. in the last two years. They've been I mean, they've still just been as supportive as they were two years ago. So it's been great. Well, that's awesome. Congratulations. And I can't wait Thanks. to come see you for a third time. Um, that's what we call doing the Beetlejuice. Oh, that's right. Time. Three times. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm due for my third. Um, I feel like the, one of the wonderful things about the show is it is the next best thing to a Beetlejuice sequel, if not better, 
because it's Ooh. not a sequel. It's not a remake. I feel like the, it would be difficult to do either one of those things. But taking sure. it to a completely new platform, completely new medium, reimagining it on a Broadway stage where you add music to it, it just breathes new life into this property that's beloved to a lot of people, myself included. Um, and, yeah. you know, for that reason, it's just it's like this sort of spectacular outgrowth of the of the original one. Um, could you tell hitting us upon something? Well, I, go ahead. Ask no, 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 You're really hitting upon something great is that is that it, two things. One is my definition of a good adaptation is something that should have a point of view and a take. It shouldn't just be the movie on stage or the book on stage, because if it's that, then why don't you just go watch the movie? You yeah. Know? So, but having a point of view that really does reflect the world around you, I think really makes a cool adaptation. And so what the writer said, actually, which I, I really, really echo, is that I think this version of Beetlejuice, the musical, is like somebody's greatest fan fiction of the movie. And so, like, it is a sort of a companion piece, really, oh, yeah. to the movie. It's sort of, and to the cartoon, you know, truly. It's like, it's, it's um, it kind of fits in with the world while not blending in with the world right. kind of has this like third sign of the cross thing where it's, <laughs> it's the, it's the Holy spirit of the, of the three, no pun intended. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, you're hitting upon perfectly. I mean, I just think that's exactly what we were trying to do was yeah. not to make something that resembled so much of the movie that you were like, well, the movie did it better. Right. The movie was excellent. So it's like, why try and do that? Mm -hmm. So we tried something else. Yeah. Yeah. Now speaking of the cartoon, I was just watching it the other day. Mm. I'm a super fan. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I think I, we, I've been, I've been, you know, saying for years now, I've been in the show for that long too, for four years at this point, they got to bring it back and, and, have, oh, yeah. you know, me voice it. <laughs> oh, that would be awesome. Now, I've the done it now. I've voiced, I've voiced the cartoon. I've voiced a yeah, Teen Titans, skin. right? Yes, that's right. So I'm happy. I'm ready to go. The voice is still here. If anyone's listening. Oh man, that would be great. Yeah. I can totally see that on Cartoon Network. Just uh, like have the yeah. same characters, the same version of Lydia, same version of Beetlejuice, all the other characters, the spider and the big hairy sure. guy. I forgot all their names, yep. but, um, but yeah, make it like a little more adult I grew yeah. up on this cartoon and it was like the perfect sort of gateway horror for me, you know, same, just like the movie was. Yeah, absolutely. What, um, what was your relationship like with the movie growing up? I liked it. I was, um, I was a Tim Burton fan kind of from the jump. Mm -hmm. And so I, it's not my favorite Tim Burton movie, but because it's Tim Burton and it was this sort of wild swing of him trying to do his palette. Yeah. It just, it all, it's a movie. It's one of those movies that if it's on television, no matter where it's at in the movie, you just stick around. Oh yeah. Um, for me. And it's, I loved it. I was all, I also grew up with a family that was um, a little darker, drier, funny, and so it wasn't off limits when mm -hmm. I was a kid. So I got to watch it and, and I guess be corrupted by it <laughs> at a young age. Um, I loved it. I loved all the things. Um, I, I really love the style. And I like that it's scary. I like I appreciate that something that can be funny can be equally as menacing. Um, and I like when things do that. I like when certain genres get bent a little like that. And I think Tim Burton is obviously one of the masters of you're not, you're not even 100% sure what genre it is. It's like the yeah. Tim Burton genre. So yeah, uh, totally I'm a big fan of anybody that can you know pave their own way. And, and that movie is a really good example of it. Yeah, it's such an anomaly in so many ways. And um, yeah, I feel like I missed the time when there were movies that were PG-13 that kids could kind of see, but they're like a little too much for kids. They kind of push you as a kid. You see it and there's some scary elements to it. And it pushes you right at your boundary in terms you of what get you're one, capable of. You get one really well-placed F word. 
Yeah. Speaking yeah. of which, yeah, speaking of it, you mentioned how Beetlejuice corrupted you. It certainly corrupted me. I remember being in the first grade, and I've seen the movie. I knew it front to back, and I had a little Lego character that I was pretending was Beetlejuice, and I made him like a little Lego, like his um his whole crypt scene I recreated, and I was in school, and I had the little <laughs> Lego Beetlejuice, and I went, nice fucking model yeah. in front of the whole class, and I had to sit in the bathroom for about 45 oh. minutes because that was bathroom talk. I didn't know that was a bad word. So Sure. Yeah. yeah. First I fuck mean, I, came I, from I'm, Beetlejuice. I'm, I'm, I, I'm sure it was one of the first 10 for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and certainly not the last. Uh, but I appreciate that as well. I think that's like, if you're going to go for it, go for it. We did it with our show. We had, we, in earlier versions of the show, I mean, we had what was essentially an NC-17 version in Washington, D.C. Uh, for anybody that's that's seen it, I apologize. <laughs> and um, I mean, we said things on that stage that I actually can't believe we got away with. And tell me more. We, oh, genuinely. I mean, we had but just and not just swear words. I mean, that's easy. Um, but we were we touched a lot of boundaries. We had, you know, very I mean, sexuality jokes we had, but really ones that you're like, I don't even know if three years beyond that would have would have shut our show down Whoa. mainly um and we, one of my favorite jokes which is not as um, controversial in the way you're thinking about it but it's one of my favorite cut lines from the show is when the handbook for the recently deceased descends from the sky and drops on the ground i presented to the audience which i still do in the show now but the original line was um i present the handbook for the recently deceased by god and then there's a laugh and then i say i'm just kidding and there's another laugh. Mm -hmm. And then I say, there is no God. And then start reading, <laughs> um, which I just and it got that kind of reaction. Yeah. What you just did, it kind of got that like laugh, but like, holy shit. Yeah. Um, and we just got enough holy shit that we were like, I'm not sure families of four. That might be the joke that make maybe makes it not recommendable to right. their friends. That could be so the we, one we thing. Did, yeah, we did that kind of like really precise shaving of things like that so that the show can still be you know, raunchy and, and, and vulgar and things like that, but it's not as challenging. It's like, we're yeah. not challenging the audience to stick around anymore. Yeah, no. And I respected that about the show. It's raunchy enough. And there's a lot of sex jokes. And at one point yeah. you do a line of cocaine and it flies sure. under right the radar. The front row. Right. Yeah. yeah. But it's still relatively family friendly in a way. Mm -hmm. And I like that kids can be taken to see this and be corrupted the way that I was by the original. I think it's movie. right. Yeah, because that, that, I guess I guess you're right. That's the one thing I would never want to do is like force maturity onto somebody that's not ready for it. So like yeah. typically the people that are coming to see the show, I mean, look, there's always a family that's going to bring like their five-year-old and right. they're like, we sit there and I've seen it in the front row and I'm like, we're about to have two empty seats here. Like it's, <laughs> I can tell after the first number that this person has just not looked up the show, oh, has yeah. no clue what this is, thinks it's a children's show. And then they watch me blow a line of cocaine off my sleeve onto their kid. And then they're like, we probably should get out of here. <laughs> so it's like the right. most expensive opening number of their life. Yeah. Um, but yeah, typically we have a pretty good, um, we've widened the tent enough that like four people, mom, dad, son, daughter, in whatever um, respect can come and kind of all enjoy it for some way. Yeah. Now that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think one of the things I really enjoyed about your performance is you're not doing a Michael Keaton impression at all, but it still right. really feels like the character. Can oh, you good. talk about how you approached embodying and performing this character that's so iconic and indelible in the minds of so many people? 
So I think this all, the quick story is, I mean, this all began when I did School of Rock because Mm -hmm. I was also given the opportunity to fill that pair of shoes. Right. Um, Which at the point, at that point, I was just young and ignorant enough to not realize how big of a deal that was. So I just was sort of like playing the role. And I think I have a sarcastic, dry Jack Black thing. Yep. So that people were able to sort of like, you know, attach that, but I wasn't clearly going for an impression. I don't consider myself an impressionist, nor do I think I'm very good at it. So with Beetlejuice, the actual pressure of the iconic role of it all, I felt. And so I think the best way to do that is to not attempt an an impression because then then the audience would just be looking for it or grading me on the impression. So over the course of many years of developing this, I've been a part of this for now for like six years Mm. um, since like the first readings of it all. I just tried shit out. Like I just was interested in the idea of what a demon, you know, that's been alive or been dead for a millennia and been around and like forgetting that it's Beetlejuice, you know, like sort of forgetting all that, um, what that would be if it was me. You know, mm. what are my likes and dislikes? What would what would I miss if I wasn't a part of life that I'd want to be a part of? And and then with the voice, you know, it's interesting because I knew that the voice had to sound monstrous. But for me, the my way into it was always physical. It was always what is what? Why? Why mm. the voice? Not just because he's a monster. So why? So I just came up with the idea that if he's been that dead for that long, clearly something is eroding and his, you know, his vocal cords at this point are probably cobwebs. Yeah. So I went from that kind of angle of like just doing that. And then the one difference that I think really, really, really sets it apart is that my Beetlejuice is is worried about not being charming. Mm. And Michael Keaton's, to his credit, because it's outstanding, is much more that fratty, predatory, right. like really, really, really invasive person. And the reasoning for it is because he's an asshole. Right. Like that's his thing. And my reason for having no boundaries is because I've never learned them. Mm. So I'm just like a little kid, like an arrested development kind of demon rather than right. one that knows how to mess with people and uses it. He doesn't realize it. Yeah. And so that's why I think our show also, like people have said, like it takes them you know, six eighths of the show to remember that I'm the bad guy. Right. Because people are extremely charmed by what we're doing. And so if that's re- the best compliment I can get is they're like, I totally forget that you're the bad guy um, until he is. And then when he is, he really is. Yeah. Cause your Beetlejuice is definitely lovable, but still Beetlejuice <laughs> kind of it's like a cartoon. Yeah. It's still gross and like that. Yeah. It sounds like you came up with an entire backstory. Yeah. I think, and that's a credit too to Alex Timbers, um, the director who does a lot of table work in the beginning of these processes. And not just the first reading, every single time we do a workshop and we've done dozens of them, uh, new table work, we talk about the script, we talk mm. about what's going on, we talk about who they are. And that is so helpful and doesn't feel repetitive because right. as you grow as an actor and a person, you have new thoughts about things. So it's, I really enjoy it. It's not every actor's dream in the world to do table work the first week of rehearsal. But for me, once we get up on our feet, it just informed everything. So you don't even have to like block anything. You just get up and you know where to go. Mm, That's really great. Yeah, it's crazy to think that Tim Burton originally wanted Sammy Davis Jr. to play. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Which, by the way, I think, you know, just in the way that like, you know, there are movies that we'll never see or ones that are locked away in a vault or whatever. How great would that have been? Watch. I mean, because there probably would be something to my Beetlejuice in that something that is charming 
and and showman. I, I there's something about that that I would have loved to see. Yeah, I don't know if you watch Rick and Morty, but the idea of like interdimensional cable and seeing different versions of things, I wish I, I would interdimensional cable and I could see Sammy Davis Jr. in Beetlejuice, just an well, alternative. Hey, version. listen, and if you believe in the multiverse, there already is one. Yeah, so, there you, you go. Know, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not saying that I do. I'm just saying that if you do. Yeah. Definitely. Um, you mentioned Beetlejuice is not your favorite Tim Burton movie. Can I guess your favorite one? I have a feeling it might be mine. Go ahead. Edward Scissorhands? Yeah. Boom. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. Easily. I yeah. like sadness. I like sadness in, in a lot of my favorite things are, are movies, songs, TV shows all involve me choking up in some way. So I can't get yeah, through that Edward. movie without completely disassembling. Like, I have to watch it a lot. It's outstanding. It's that bad. It's like I can't it's great. fucking keep it together yeah oh i'm with you i it's one of those just just you know you especially because you anyone that's in the creative art forms too that has had moments of feeling unseen or weird or feeling like the other yeah like you know there's nothing there's nothing worse than that and then there's nothing better than somebody seeing you for who you are and so that is my genre completely mm. yeah <laughs> that's why i love that movie yeah there will be no other tim burton movie that will ever come close to me no it's uh it's perfection i mean having seen beetlejuice the musical i can't help but think like what else would make a good musical the first thing that occurred to me was ghostbusters that would yeah. be insane if it had the same treatment you know as this ideally all the same people involved you know sure i could see you playing venkman for sure <laughs> uh, i would i mean i i'm i'm more than willing and and more than happy to and especially where the way technology is going for stage stuff and, oh, yeah. and how you know amazingly complex that can be with screens and leds and projection it's like there's no doubt that that's i mean they're doing back to the future in the west end oh that's so, right i think London, i heard about that yeah, I know, and I know nothing about it aside from the fact that they're doing it. So, like, clearly they're making a car fly or something. Right. You know, it's like they're doing something. Yeah, yeah. No, it would be pretty cool. Edward Scissorhands would be interesting too, but they couldn't. Well, I don't know if you know top. this. Edward Scissorhands is is actually being made into a ballet. What? Yeah. So Matthew Bourne, I believe, is the choreographer, and he did. You can look this up. He he did a ballet version of Edward Scissorhands, which actually kind of makes a ton of sense in a way. Totally. With how the score of Edward Scissorhands is, it feels very like a sung through sort of operatic kind of thing yeah. that I think I saw some footage of and I think it is available to see on like a YouTube idea, but it's gorgeous and it like makes a lot of sense because yeah. he doesn't talk a ton. And, you know, so there is something kind of beautiful about that. No, that sounds because I was trying to imagine it as a musical. What would the songs be like? It would get a little kitschy, although the the, yeah. the aesthetic of the movie is intentionally kitschy during all the suburbia scenes and whatever. Sure. So it might work. But ballet makes all the sense in the world. It is a ballet. Yeah, totally. And oh, I like that. I like amazing. when people can think outside of that box, too. It's like, how do we do something? It doesn't not everything needs to be a musical Yeah. I mean, the way, same way. Not everything needs to be a movie. Like sometimes your idea is an operetta. It's an opera. It's a mm -hmm. ballet. Um, I really enjoy thinking about that. And whenever something like that, like a like a uh, um, Edward Scissorhands ballet, I go, of course. <laughs> yeah. It's like, of course. No, that's a big duff for me too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I got to look that up. That sounds amazing. Yeah. So what else are you working on these days? So I've been, I mean, even before the sort of um, the pandemic allowed me to have I mean, so much free time. I didn't know what to do with. Um, I have been a writer for a very long time and 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 been working on a lot of stuff, sort of as hard as they're working on the construction in this building here that you can hear. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I've been, I mean, I've been a writer. I've sold a couple television shows. Um, one I'm working on currently um, with uh, uh, one of the writers of Beetlejuice. So Anthony King and I wow. um, uh, sold a show uh, right before the pandemic and have been developing that to try and get um, on the air. 
as it is. I don't know if that's the real phrase anymore. On the streaming? Is there even on? <laughs> is there even air anymore? In the stream? Um, on the stream? I don't know. In the stream. Yeah, we're trying to get in the stream. And uh, that's just a very, like, you know, interesting, fun rom-com that centers around a guy in New York trying to, you know, put the pillars of his life back together that I found to be an interesting story. Um, and then most recently, um, I've been just developing a lot of stuff. So mm-hmm. one of the things I'm developing in the in the realm of the Nick Taylor horror show experience and I think that people would enjoy is I am always so fascinated with nightmares. Yep. And and I and I scary horror and all that kind of stuff. That's sort of my genre. Like that's my number one. I'll watch shitty horror movies, really good ones, uh the cerebral ones, the very kitschy ones, anything I love. And I've always been fascinated with nightmares because I have them all the time mm-hmm. and I don't like having them. No, who does? But I always got very fascinated with like, what are the most common ones? Cause I think that's interesting. Like in the world, we all speak different languages, but some, somehow we all have top 10 same nightmares, yeah. falling, being chased spiders. Like it's like, we're all sort of afraid of something in the top 10. And so I took that and um, am now developing an anthology, a 10-part anthology, um, all one-offs, sort of like Black Mirror a little bit with a similar sort of uh, bent um, that is based on the top 10 nightmares um, that have been logged, I guess, over a certain year, Um, but taking them in a way that you wouldn't expect. So it's not just a story about spiders. Um, It's in a way that is very, like, you wouldn't even know where the spider would be in this story until the end of it. Right. So um, I'm developing that. It's currently called 10 days of night. Um, and uh, yeah, me and uh, I'm doing it essentially alone and just brought on um, my writing partner, Nick Walker, who's another Broadway guy to help me out because he's sort of, I think like our next Jordan Peele, Quentin Tarantino type. So Whoa. I'm trying to hold on to him as hard as I can yeah. to ride some coattails later. Um there's that. And then I've been pitching a lot of cartoons, actually, because oh, wow. I got involved. I got uh, very lucky and, and I've been a part of this cartoon called Hell of a Boss, yep. um, which came completely out of the Beetlejuice of it all. They came to see Beetlejuice, heard my voice and said, we want that voice on this character. So it was the first time I didn't have to audition for something in this entire career, which has been amazing. Hmm. And then the fandom of that is crazy. So do two seasons of that so far. And then was lucky enough to be on a new cartoon coming out on Netflix in June called uh, Dead End Paranormal Park. Ooh. Paranormal Park. It's a new title. It used to be called okay. something else. So I'm, I'm getting used to it. Dead End colon Paranormal Park, uh, which will be on Netflix in June. And there are two seasons of that as well. So just sort of like, you know, trying to be as much of a renaissance multi-hyphenate as I possibly can. Really. That's awesome. <laughs> really, really yeah. cool. Nice. And And walking my dog whenever I get a chance. Right, right. And you do improv as well, right? I I was I essentially was born of improv. Yeah, it's like it's the long it's the thing I've done the longest, I think, aside from musical theater. I think I started doing musical theater when I was eight years old. And I think at around 11, I started doing um, improv and then carried that over into high school and sort of like um, more of the comedy sports of it all in California and then just do it here. And I really infuse that into mainly everything that I do, yeah. um, whether it's mandated or not. Got it. <laughs> it's sort of like when people hire me for those things, it's like, you're going to have to at least expect a little bit of me riffing because yeah. I can't live any other way. And so I, I now have the luxury to do that. I'm in a position where I'm not unknown to these people. So I think that they know what they're getting themselves into if they hire me. 
It just means longer hours for everybody. Right, right. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a it's a lost magic in Hollywood. When you look at movies like the original Ghostbusters and Caddyshack, the, there's moments that occur on screen that are so magical that you know were not in the script, that nobody could have written anything, possibly written anything that was that, that good and that lands as well as some of these moments land. And it's all because of improv. All these guys have and- an improv background. Not just in comedy, you know, the famous uh, Ripley and Alien basketball shot. I mean, no, it's not the, oh, you don't. Oh, Nick, please look this up when we were done. And everybody, okay. if you haven't seen this, look it up. There's a shot in Alien where they're playing basketball and Ripley uh, walks away after kind of having a, a little tete-a-tete with Ron Perlman. And oh, so this is in. A, yeah, OK. Yeah. Is it one or two? It's one I think it's three. I think Ron Perlman is in the David Fincher three? one, which is Resurrection. Yeah, you might be. Yeah, right. So in it, there's a basketball scene and they're like kind of, you know, shooting the shit or whatever. And then she tosses a basketball behind her back after this conversation to sort of punctuate the conversation. And it goes in, swishes. It was It was supposed to cut away Whoa. and just make the shot. But she made the shot on the take. <laughs> and so they have, if you look online, they have sort of the extension of the rest of that moment because they cut, but there's yeah. still a camera running and you can see all of them. And they're like, <laughs> and so that makes that shot in the movie almost look like CGI. Cause it's like, there's wow. no way right. that she made this shot on that one take, but she did. Wow. So it's like those, I like that kind of, and they all roll with it too. You didn't see any of the actors be like, Whoa, they kind of were like, <laughs> you know, they really stayed in character. And I think that really, that stuff you can't buy. No, you can't. No, it's a magic of improv, man. You got to take the shot. Who knows? It might land. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. And also things like, you know, Blair Witch is like the ultimate improv experience. Like that became, you know, that bridged on the idea of like (laughs) absolute insanity and improv, but they were improvising. Mm -hmm. I mean, they didn't, they really didn't have too much of a script. So they were like the waiting for Guffman of horror movies. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently the original Iron Man didn't have a script when they were shooting. Excuse me. You're talking about the Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently there was what? no script or it was very incomplete and they had to fill in the gaps. And that's why when you wow. watch that movie now, there's moments you can tell people are riffing and you can tell it's like Downey being Downey. I have and to watch that. That's fascinating. You watch it through this new lens. It's a very different experience, but it's almost oh, I'm very better. excited. Yeah. And I think it's partially why that movie is as good as it is. I think as far as Marvel movies, it might be the best. I think it might be the best. I, I think that a lot of good directors and I think more so than ever are understanding the idea that like, getting the scripted take is good mm-hmm. and then doing a couple more just to see what comes out of it is always better yeah. because trusting your actors, especially if you've cast good ones is good. You don't want to, you don't want to be the dictator on set and go do it the way I want to do it because everybody has a point of view and in the moment it could be different. And I'd mean that across all genres. And I think yeah. you can see it in movies. I mean, super bad being my favorite, I guess. Yeah, that's a great one. <laughs> it's just every one of those moments was not in the script. Oh, is that right? I didn't know it was well, that. Well, uh, you know, everyone's part. favorite little moments is right. like it's Jonah Hill and Michael Sarah being themselves and being yeah. with each other and having real moments. Yeah, Knocked Up was pretty similar in that regard too. When those yeah, guys exactly. Were I mean, a lot of so the Judd funny. Apatow, a lot yeah. of the Judd Apatow stuff is sort of how I would like to work. It's like let's get let's get what we need, mm-hmm. and now let's get the real one. Right, right. Did you see Booksmart? Speaking of um, yeah. old school, yeah. I loved yep. that. I thought that was so funny. It's like a new. I did too. I'm not, not old school. Was... Super bad. Yeah, yeah, it's like same a new thing. super I mean, bad. Yep, I agree completely. I thought it was great. Again, and like clearly there's moments of just them heart to heart, no totally. script. Yeah. 
Yeah, Scorsese's a big fan of doing that. There's moments in the movies where you can just, like the dinner scene in Goodfellas, all improvised. And the whole yes. one dog looking one way, one looking the other way. The other guy say, what do you want from me? That was all, none of that was in the script. I mean, it's so uh, good. Yeah, that's how you get the best stuff. Be kind of cool to work with him, I think. Yeah, that might be fun. He does. He does pretty good movies. He's an up. He's a real up and comer. I think. Uh, I think he's going to be a big deal one of these days. I, I think so. Know. Yeah. <laughs> Alex, this was a whole lot of fun and a real pleasure. Thank you for taking the time. And uh, I was looking forward to it. I, I really appreciate. It. I'm a. I'm a fan of horror. I'm a fan of Nick Taylor. So. I oh, that. thank you for that. I appreciate it. Uh, sure. Cannot wait to come back for my third viewing so I can complete the Beetlejuice trilogy. Uh, and huge congratulations. I really love the show. I urge anybody listening, if you're in New York, come see it. If you're not in New York, fly out and see it. It is very well worth it and a whole bunch of fun. And one of the most wonderful tributes to the iconic legacy of Beetlejuice that we all know and love. So, Alex, That's thank you. That's very, very nice. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> of course. All right. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor. And on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show.